Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. us today and to hear what the Spirit says to the church. If you would join me in Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in just a few moments in verse 18. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. I feel impressed this morning to say a couple of things. Um, Not that I would try to avoid saying those things, but... uh, I just want you to know how much I love you and how much I care about you as a church, but even more than a church as individuals, as families. And uh, we live in a day that, you know, some would say bad days. I would say they're typical days. Uh, Every generation has those, and every generation experiences brokenness and fears and anxieties and all of those sorts of things. What am I supposed to do, and how am I supposed to do it? And this is the first time maybe in this point in our lives that we've ever had to deal with some of the things we're dealing with. And so it's it's new to us, but I just want to say to you this morning that if, if you're here, or maybe since you're here, you do recognize brokenness and, and maybe some to the point of fear. And, uh, and I just want you to know you don't have to struggle alone. One of Satan's greatest lies is that you're the only one and that you are vulnerable. And uh, I'm convinced once Satan can isolate us in our own mind, uh, he wins half the battle. And I just want to remind you this morning, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever fears you're facing and whatever brokenness that you're working out, he loves you. And... Uh, and his love is enough, and his grace is enough. And as a, as a pastor of a church, I hope that we can extend that love and that grace uh, to one another as a reminder of his goodness. Uh, here, I want you to know, if this is your first Sunday or your thousandth Sunday, uh, it's very important that you feel loved and valued and accepted, uh, not just in setting where you are, Uh, whether that be in sin or in freedom. Uh, But you're accepted because Jesus Christ has made you acceptable. And you are worthy because he has made you worthy. And there is no worth and there is no value apart from Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you this morning as we open up the word of God in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. This is the longest letter, smallest church. We'll talk a little bit more about Thyatira in just a few moments. There's not much known about it. Early church historians, for instance, Pliny actually mentions Thyatira only one time in all the histories. And this is, this is actually his quote. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of really derogatory to them, although we might understand. He says, uh, other important cities like Thyatira. <laughs> so even in history, it's like, you know, all the unimportant cities well, like that one. <laughs> Uh, And so there's not much going on there. It wasn't an important city. It was about 40 miles beyond Pergamos, and it's about 40 miles till you get to Sardis on this postal route of letters being given to these seven churches. Again, their location isn't as important as their character uh, being formed in them. And so let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 
18. These are letters written to real churches, real pastors of real churches, real circumstances in real time. And to the angel, that word angel is the word angelos, which just means messenger. It does not mean that there is an angel assigned to the church. It just means to the messenger of this church, which is most likely the one reading the letter and most likely the pastor himself, although we can't know for sure. To the angel of the church at Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, I won't talk about this later, but for now we see that these four commendable acts, they are growing in these. Where they are currently, they are growing in, in these. So it's church is, is, is growing, producing. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. She has already had time to repent. Her time is over. But if you're still in bed with her, your time to repent is beginning now, unless you repent of the works. And I will strike her children dead. Ooh, this is ominous speech. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Your judgment will be a testimony to other churches. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I will not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It follows very closely the thought of the letter to Pergamum, which we learned last week. It's a letter about a church that has a lot of good things going on, a lot of good discipleship that's going on, a lot of good growth that's going on, but it's also gay, engaged in long-term compromise. Now, the church at Pergamum was engaged in compromise. The church at Thyatira has been compromising so long that it has turned into tolerance and acceptance. It's become their identity and their identification. Not only are they aware of it, they're practicing it. So what is beginning at Pergamum has become full bloom in Thyatira. This church at Thyatira, far away, kind of isolated by itself, has taken on full-scale idolatry, full-scale immorality, and worst of all, tolerance of both. It's not just those that are practicing these behaviors. It's those that refuse to stand up against them. This is the church that's been infiltrated by the world. Yeah, they're doing great things. But they're tolerating sin, and sin has now been absorbed into the church. Absorbed error. Absor absorbed false teaching false positions, false people that have intentionally or unintentionally lured them away. Their actions were great. Their truth is missing. This is the kind of church that's really common today. It's easy to see the power of at least the American church in demise being so influenced by its culture that it's barely distinguishable between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. This is the longest of the seven letters. 
smallest of the church, smallest of the cities. It's harsh, and it demands attention to be given to several issues going on there, and I hope to get through all of them today. Well, let's start with the first and the most pervasive thought that comes to our mind as we read the letters. Obvious that this church is tolerating sin. It's tolerating acts of immorality, certain involvement with idols. We're going to explain all that in a moment. Verse 20 indicates that. And it not only has it tolerated, but it's allowed the, the woman who is teaching to have reached a point of prominent prominence and influence. And they knew that what she was teaching was wrong, but no one wanted to do anything about it. And now she's gained so much influence, nobody can do anything about it. And she's articulating and leading Christians astray intentionally as well as collecting around herself other false believers in the church has become filled with, as Jesus would say, sheep and goats. The Lord promises that he's going to judge. And he's going to judge that church so severely, sparing only those who, according to verse 24, do not hold this teaching. And there is still some hope for those who are holding the teaching to repent. If, there, if we can learn anything from these letters to these churches is that the the cure all to any issue with any characteristic of a church the the core cure is repentance this takes us back to the very basic understanding that we have in regard to this church in this world where we've really hijack the word grace people use the word grace all the time not having any idea what the word actually means grace you know using artificial substitutes for tolerance and acceptance and and when people are in sin we say well we need to be careful be gracious we need to be gracious do no harm don't hurt people's heart all of these sorts of things and we call it grace but it's not grace most often it's tolerance because we don't like conflict and we don't want to run people off. Because we know if they get angry at the church, what will they do? Just find another one that will tolerate it. And listen, let me tell you something. You'll always find a church that will tolerate whatever sin you're dealing with. Now, the goal can't be tolerance. The goal has to be holiness. That's the church we should be looking for. The one that produces Christ-likeness, not the one that produces permission. And there's a way to do that in love and with grace. You see, what happens when we overinflate grace and turn it into licensure to sin, what we are truly doing is inflating self. And any, you cannot inflate self without deflating Christ. Nobody would do that on purpose. But we do inflate our own view and opinions and wants and desires and cravings. And we overlook them and we excuse them and we justify them. And what we do is while we are rising, we are reducing Christ. And that happens in an individual and that happens in the church. So when we inflate self, we naturally begin to think, you know, God's, God's good. God wants me happy. You know, God uh, God's wants to be a blessing to me, and God is blessing me, and here's how it looks to be blessed. And we start coming up with all of these ideas that almost have us as the apple of God's eye. Like, like God is going to overlook our sin because we've been told that God loves us unconditionally. Well, let me explain to you how that works. God does not love you because of who you are. He loves you because of who He is. And so instead of worshiping ourselves, we ought to be worshiping a God who doesn't overlook sin, but gave his son for your sin. That's what it costs. And so when you think that God is going to overlook your justification and your excuses in sin, that's going to lead you down a really dark path that is so slippery, you don't know you're slipping. What you're doing is inflating your view of yourself and you're believing things about yourself that God doesn't believe. Like God's going to overlook our sin because of who we are. Now, God didn't 
God didn't, God didn't save you so that you could stay in sin. God saved you so that you could become the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. So we, when we give a little nod to sin, and I'm not talking about murder and corruption, but let me tell you something. In sin, the wages of sin is always what? I don't care what you call it. It always leads to death of some sort in our lives. Just overlook it. And when we believe God overlooks it, we will begin to overlook it. And that conscience will be seared. And those, our hearts will become hardened. And we become rigid. And we become even more and more selfish. It's dangerous and in, in no way is it true. And it happens to good churches. It happened to Thyatira. It's, it's very clear throughout really all of the scripture. And I want to use just a couple of illustrations of what God wants for us. We, we, we tend to think that what God wants is he just wants us to, to have a cuddly relationship with him. But let me, let me stop there for a moment and say the only way that's possible is through the holiness of Jesus Christ, his righteousness. That's the only way that relationship works. So if you want to have a relationship with the Father without a holy relationship with the Son, it, it doesn't exist. There is no such thing. And so what God wants first and foremost, and, I want, and if you need to write it down to remember, I, I, mean, I would encourage you to do this. God is not as concerned about your happiness as he is your holiness. That's why Jesus died on the cross for you. Not so that you could have happiness and be blessed, but one of the blessings is to have the holiness of Jesus Christ applied to your life. That's, that's, the, that's the goal of salvation is holiness, and holiness gives birth to happiness. And if you have to have happiness apart from holiness, you will find out eventually it ain't happiness. It's death. It's a substitute. It's destruction. And the, the Jesus that presents himself to us as this loving, caring friend, when he returns, is coming back with a sword and piercing eyes and burnished bronze feet to judge his church that currently he is walking among and looking at everything. He wants his church in every sense to be intolerant of sin, corporately and individually. Now, a lot of times we, we talk about belonging to a church, and that's really important, like we take on the identity of the church. Not true. The church takes on the identity of the people. So you belong to our church. It doesn't change right and wrong. You can become a, a part of Connect Church and have your association with the church. But listen, the church takes on the identity of the people. The people are the body of Christ. This goes all the way back to the very first instruction. In, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus first talks about, and I will build my church. That's the first statement of Jesus' intention to establish a church. He goes on to teach some other things. I won't get into that. But in Matthew chapter 18, this is the first instruction to the church that Jesus said he's going to start. This is the very first thing he said as an instruction to the church. He says, if he listens to you, this is about the, the, if the brother sins, go and reprove him in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to them, let him tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The very first thing that Jesus tells as an instruction to the church is be intolerant of sin. Confront it when you hear about it. And here's how you do it. Be careful not to allow brothers and sisters to begin the slippery slope into Thyatira. In Acts chapter 15, this is the first Jerusalem council. This is the first time the church fathers sat down to determine what we're going to do with all these Gentile Christians who aren't Jews. They don't have the same 
priorities that we do. They don't understand the sacrifice, sacrificial system. They don't understand the synagogues and the temples. And they don't understand all of the law and the prophets. They don't understand. All they know is they're broken. And what are we going to require of them to be saved? They've got to become Jews first and go through circumcision first. Once they become a Jew, then they can become a Christian. What are we going to do? And you remember, in ver- in, uh, this is in verse 29 of Acts 15. This is the last paragraph of their council's decision. It says, you are up to abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and things strangled and from sexual sin. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. These are four things that the first Jerusalem council said are absolutely requirements for finding good favor in salvation in the local church. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't eat blood. Don't eat things that are strangled. And keep yourself sexually moral. Don't don't participate in sexual immorality. Do that. You'll do well. So the first church is warned about what could not be brought in. Idol feasts, blood, strangulation. So we say four things, but really those are two things. Food sacrificed to idols in certain ways and sexual immorality. They can't be tolerated. We don't take a big jump to look over at the church of Thyatira. They were guilty of two things. Idol feasts, sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we find the same emphasis that's made. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, It's actually reported that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that doesn't exist even among Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife. Again, this most likely is his mother, his stepmom, not his biological mother. And then Paul says, And you have become arrogant about it. You're patting him on the back. And you're saying, well, everybody needs somebody to love. Well, at least he's happy now. Oh, they're such a cute couple. Sickening. Instead of humble and contrite and broken and repentant, you haven't mourned. And he says, in in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst, you have to practice an intolerance of sin because once sin gets a foothold it will permeate in fact what he says is it the the little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump get that leaven out of the before it corrupts the church second corinthians chapter 11 there's a thing that paul says here in second corinthians 11 verse 2 he says i'm jealous For you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And the the illustration of that is, is that the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus himself is the bridegroom. And for all eternity, we're going to experience this relationship with him and become one with Christ in all of eternity. And he says here very clearly that his goal for the church is purity, not permissiveness, not what can I get away with. It's discipleship, not how far can I go before it's sin. It's pursuing excellence and pursuing maturity, not how good do I have to be to still make it. When that starts to become our thought processes, I'm telling you, we are shriveling away from Christ-likeness. And I think one of the things that Jesus is teaching here is just because you're a part of a church doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Because some churches may not make it. Chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul says the same thing. The same concept. He says that in the illustration between husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, What did he say next? That he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word in order that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So what kind of church is Jesus looking for when he comes back to judge? Pure, white, holy, obedient, like Jesus. And listen, if we don't, if we don't tether ourselves to that often, I'm telling you, there is this natural move away from holiness to more of a, yeah, but is it so bad? I mean, it, to me, it's not much unlike that very first sin when Satan said, but did God really say? See, they've been separated for God for a minute or two. I mean, if God would have been right there in that moment, he would just smack that serpent and said, shut your mouth. That ain't the way God operates. He wants you to have a choice. He wants you to choose him. He, he wants you to choose holiness. If he didn't, he'd just make you holy. And as soon as you said yes to Jesus, he'd take you on. But that's not what his choice is. His choice is that you could participate in his kingdom while we still live and breathe. But I'm telling you, the church now, as Adam did, is still listening to that voice. He, just like Eve did, the, the, the bride, did God really say that this is that bad? You know what? The culture is doing this and the culture is doing that. I mean, really, nobody looks down on that anymore. Those are not sins that you have to commit in secret anymore. Is it really that bad? I mean, it's the same lie that took us from fellowship from Jesus to begin with. So with that as a background, it isn't difficult to come to this particular text in Revelation and understand that the church in Thyatira was in direct conflict with the command of Christ. The church wasn't just compromising. They had compromised. They moved from compromising right into tolerating and not saying anything at all. Spiritual fornication Spiritual adultery led them to physical adultery and sexual sin. In a world of permissiveness and mind your own business and my body, my business, and nobody's going to tell me what to do, and man, it is everywhere you turn. Everybody has their own way. And this is not new. It's so important for you to understand. It's not new. We're not the first ones broken. This is 6,000 years old. When we slip away from the obey, obeying the commandments of Christ, we do what is right in our own eyes, and we call what is evil good and what is good evil. To me, you can read the Old Testament and see that over and over and over, that exact statement over and over and over. And I'm telling you, I think it's more clear today than it was then. The apostles, the Bible, God himself has been very clear. Idolatry, anything that, anything that comes between you and holiness... Idolatry and sexual sin do not belong in the life of a Christian. And I don't care what you tell yourself, if you tolerate these particular sins in your life, you are learning the deep things of Satan. God is not giving you a pass, and there is not this freedom because he's not thrown a lightning bolt. I'm telling you, the lightning bolt will come for all eternity. It's not a neutral act. It's not a nobody's going to get hurt but me. It's not this act of your own will and you'll pay the... It's hellish. God is not neutral. Fornication is any sexual sin, any sexual activity outside of marriage. And adultery is any sexual activity within marriage, but not with your spouse. And when the Bible uses the word adultery, it covers fornication and adultery. Any sexual sin that God says does not please him. He's the one that established it. He gets to set the ground rules. There's not one thing wrong with sex. If... You abide by what Jesus Christ taught himself and what God's word teaches us about it. That's where you'll find happiness in it. 
People turn to that and drug and any other sort of addiction. Lots of things that we turn to out of our brokenness. We try to self-medicate. We try to make it easier on ourselves. We try to find something to fill that void, fill that hole, that emptiness. Jesus Christ is the only thing that fills it properly. Everything else leads to death. So into this church, the evils of idolatry and immorality had come through a woman. And the Bible calls her, Jesus calls her Jezebel. Uh, Sadly, in the original language, it says that woman in English. But in the original language, it says your woman. And it says to the angel of the church. And so some say that this Jezebel is actually the pastor's wife. Better be careful who you marry. It's probably more of a title than it is a name. I don't think anybody would look at their baby and say, oh, let's call her Jezebel. Oh, it's such a pretty name for a little girl. Reminds me of that Old Testament queen. What was her name? It's important to know that this as a title, I believe it is figurative language. Jezebel in the Old Testament, incredibly evil woman from start to finish. Some things that you may not know about her. The Bible says that gives us some brief instruction about her and information about her. But she was, she was actually the daughter of the king of Sidon. Uh, Sidon is uh, in history for those of you who love history these are the Phoenicians uh, she was the princess of Phoenicia which were world powers during the days of her becoming married to Ahab uh, her dad was instrumental in beginning Baal worship in, uh, in Phoenicia and uh, they began to, to put together a great deal of effort toward um, uh, Baal worship, and to prove how powerful Ahab was, he decided that he was going to take the offer and marry the king of Sidon's daughter. And so this wasn't an act of love, this was an act of power, and I want to prove how powerful I am. I'm marrying into the most powerful nation in the world. Now, because she had grown up in this religious system, she introduced Baal worship as well as Asherah, and Astarte, both of those became very prominent uh, gods that were worshipped among the Israelites. Lured them away. They gave lots of power to prophets. You remember the story of when Elijah felt like he was the only one left. That's how difficult it was to find a believer during the days of Jezebel. Everyone had slipped away, calling themselves the people of God and bowing down to Baal. It's interesting that he she that Jesus calls this woman Jezebel, because that's exactly what she has done. She has slipped in among them, she's lured them into her good graces, she began to teach false teachings. And lured them away. They still call themselves the people of God. But they're worshiping idols. And sexual immorality. They think they're free. They think they've arrived. They think they're progressive. They think they're moving forward. They've become enlightened. They're permitted followers. Walking out grace of Jesus. And yet Jesus says they're following the deep things of Satan. Remember the church at Smyrna was being assaulted by a synagogue of Satan. They were claiming to be Jews, but as Jesus said, true Jews follow Jesus. You know, if you're a Jew and you're not a Christian, you're not really a Jew. You're the synagogue of Satan. These are people that are you know, outside against them in the form of danger. They're coming against them and bringing persecution upon them. You had the church at Pergamos was being confronted at the throne of Satan. It's not the synagogue of Satan. These are Gentiles who are making life very difficult for them at the throne of Satan, coming against them in the form of death. So Smyrna in the form of danger, and now 
Pergamos in the form of death. And then Thyatira herself had plummeted into these deep things of Satan. But this wasn't coming from the outside. No, no, no. These deep things of Satan met with them every week in worship. These things are going on on the inside. And as Jesus walks and examines the church at Thyatira, he looks and he sees numerical growth and fellowship and outreach and ministry. All of the things that we find in Acts chapter 2. But at the same time, evil can have itself established in the very deep things of Satan in the life of the church. The Bible says here, Jesus announces himself as the Son of God, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze. Remember, every letter that he writes, he draws back from his introduction in chapter 1. And he uses illustrations of chapter 1 to say, this is the one that's, that's speaking to you. These are the characteristics that's speaking to you. Piercing eyes, bronze feet, this is the strongest, heaviest gauge metal in the ancient world. This was, this, was, this was feet that was able to walk through fire and destruction uh, at swift speed. Indestructible. <clears throat> but if you look over in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 1, you will see that in this imagery, Jesus presents himself as the son of man. And then the description. Eyes like fire, feet like bronze hair white as wool. We won't get to that one today, but you see this description. In chapter 1, verse 13, says the Son of Man. In chapter 2, he describes himself as the Son of God coming with eyes of fire and feet of bronze. That's not an accident. Jesus is moving from his relating to us in his humility and his humanity, and now he is clearly coming as the judge. Jesus says, John, go back to Daniel chapter 10 where it says of God that he has eyes like torches of fire. And speaking of the fierceness of God's judgment, it's like Superman's x-ray vision. You can think that you're hiding. Be quite honest, you can. If you come here, you can hide. You can live a completely separate life. You can think and you can do and you can hide and you can wear masks. I don't have eyes of fire. But I'm also not going to judge you. My judgment would be corrupted. I don't have the ability to judge. I myself is going, I'm going to be judged. I'm not, I'm not angry with you. I'm saying let's work together. That's what I'm begging for us to do as a church. We need to work together to be this church. I'm not angry. I feel desperate. We need accountability. We need discipline. We need love. We need caring. We need encouragement. We need healing. We need repentance. But Jesus can see right through your mask, right through your heart. And you can mask around just like all of them, all of them did. That Jesus can see and there's not one place that you go that he ain't walking to. Remember, Jesus doesn't judge from the outside appearance. He judges from the heart. And that judges from the heart, meaning he can look right on the inside and see what manner of person we are. Think about that. You think about Jesus who shows up and says, the son of God, the warrior, eyes glowing with fire, feet sparkling in the burnished bronze. It's a terrifying picture. Unless you're holy. Because if you're holy when Jesus comes like that, you get relief. If you're living at the church at Thyatira, you ought to be scared to death that this Jesus is coming. God has the holiness to not tolerate sin. Can you imagine receiving this letter and then having it read aloud in front of everyone? 
Tyre Tyre had become a Roman occupied city by this time they had been so for almost 300 years city was a very very it was in a in a very long uh, narrow valley that swept all the way down to Pergamos truly and if you ever got into this area <clears throat> I'm going to quickly explain this anybody who ever marched through like any armies that ever went through to take any other city you had to go now there was not much in Thyatira but you would go through Thyatira because it was right in a valley and so they would march through and history tells us Every generation, Thyra Tyra gets destroyed and they have to rebuild. I mean, everybody who marches through takes all their stuff. Nobody wanted to live there. So many places I can think like that. But nobody wants, nobody wants to keep having to rebuild and rebuild and rebuild. And so the only thing that was really left were the people that had been there for generations who just refused to move. And so the only... Uh, uh, industry that existed in Thyatira was craftsmen and and there were lots of craftsmen guilds like associations of crafters who would come together and especially they specialized in wool that was the largest one and they also dyed their <clears throat> dyed as in you know changed the color of fabric very prominent in Thyatira if you had fabric that had been dyed or wool especially that had been dyed it probably came from Thyatira and so these guilds would get together and they kind of became like fraternities or sororities. And if you wanted to sell, you had to belong. And so no matter where your market was, if you sold wool, you belonged to the wool guild. If you owned a dyeing business, you, you were a part of the dyeing guild. And every guild developed their own culture, their subculture. And because they were now Roman, they had developed like origin stories of where they came from. And so each one of them appealed to a different God who had different experiences and expectations. If you didn't produce and if you didn't follow the teachings of these gods and stay faithful to these gods, then you couldn't work. Your license was taken away, homeless, no property. And so these guilds had a great deal of influence over everybody. And they would get together and they would have these huge sacrificial parties. Each guild would do that. And so, for instance, you would have the, the wool guild and they would come together and they would worship their certain god, say Apollo, who was the chief god of Thyatira. And they would come together to worship him and they would go through all the sacrifices and, and they would make all of these uh, sacrificial meals to him. And then they would get together, have these big drunk fest, orgy fests, and they would celebrate the god of Apollo. And if they did that, then all of the wool merchants would be blessed. Now imagine if you were a wool merchant and you followed Jesus Christ and you would say, I will not bow and I will not sacrifice to any God but the one God of Israel. You're out. Homeless. Financial ruin. But you had somebody at your church that said, just go through the motions. It's fine. Just go and eat the food. It's fine. Nobody really cares. What God cares about is your heart. Just make sure your heart is pure. Don't worry about all that stuff. Go on and, and live in sexual immorality. God's already saved your soul. That part's the part that matters. Don't worry about the flesh. The flesh is going to be destroyed anyway. In fact, as a church, let's kind of create our own guild. We'll kind of do our own thing. We'll sacrifice to God and we'll do all our things. And that way we'll all have a clear conscience. You know what? Believing that actually makes good sense. I think that's what I'm going to do. Because after all, God does care. And we start telling ourselves these logical things that give explanation. And a generation later, you can't tell the difference between a worshiper of Apollo and a worship of Jesus Christ. By the way, did you know that Apollo, well, you probably didn't know. That's okay. You, you might have. Every culture that develops these multiple God systems, they rename them because they want to have their own. So over years, the Canaanites, the Sidonites, many of these uh, Phoenician gods had Baal worship, the god of the sun. And his face was like the face of a man with rays coming out like his face was the sun. And, you know, Baal was the God of the sun and the God of the sky. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you'll know that the God that was worshipped in Thyatira, Apollo, is the sun God. 
who has dominion over the sky. And if you want to have any kind of relationship between man and the gods beyond, you have to go through Apollo. Baal had evolved into Apollo. The earliest pictures of Apollo is the face of a man with rays shooting out. Isn't it interesting that Jezebel brought about Baal worship to Israel, and now this Jezebel is bringing on Apollo worship to the New Testament church. There's a, right outside the city, there was an oracle, Sambathe. She was a, an old, decrepit lady who would prophesy, tell you the future. And uh, if you paid her enough money, she, she, would, she would prophesy. It's possible that as these Christians begin to multiply and have good favor and do all their good outreach, all their humanitarian efforts and enjoy each other's company and love each other, she began attending their church. Maybe. I'm only making this up. Don't take this as truth. She heard them make their prayer requests. And she'd say, well, if you, if you come over to my place, I'll be able to do this thing for you. She'd be able to hear their brokenness, see their wounds, living in. Before long, you become a, a teacher among them, a person of influence. Someone who begins to dominate and have and leverage personal relationships. Now, whether it was this particular woman that we know or another woman that had crept into the church, I don't know. It would make sense that it's her. I don't know that for sure, but I know that she's a Jezebel. And I know that she lived during these days. This church, when she came in, didn't test her. Maybe it was the pastor's wife. I don't know. There's no evidence of that at all other than your, but he may be talking to the church, your woman, your wife. But the church didn't test her. The church didn't rebuke her. The church didn't check her. The church didn't discipline her. The church didn't warn others of her. In fact, here's what the church did. Nothing. Just let it take its course. It'll eventually go away. It'll be, if God wants it fixed, God will fix it. Let's just endure patiently. Maybe this pastor was weak. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was warned with curses. We can't know. What we can know is that the church was commanded and empowered to do something, and it did nothing, and it resulted in a root that took hold, and by the second century, there was no church at Thyatira. Man, listen, this is dangerous stuff. And you can be warned about all the wolves that live out there. And if you think there's not wolves inside the church, you are sadly mistaken. These are not people we would parade around, but we have dealt with wolves who intentionally try to lure people away. One in particular instance, I can remember when I still pastored in Nashville, Tennessee, there was a man that began to come into our church. He always come in late. Every service he was there, he came in late and very loudly. And he sat right over here on this side. And as he would walk up, he would be hitting people like, hey, hey, everybody. And he would get everybody's attention. And then as soon as service was over, he'd be out in the foyer talking to people. Well, one night I wanted to get to know him a little bit because he was super aggressive. And I began to talk to him, and he began to try to tell me about heaven and hell and what the Bible really means. And I'm, I'm of a different group, and I would love to be able to share with you these things that we've learned. And he started doing all these things. Because I'm not really interested in all that. I'm pretty sure I know what, what I believe, and um, I'd love for you to hear what we able to sit down together. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that sometime. And I sat down at his house one time, and we talked. And you know, he just told me what I wanted to hear, but he kept showing back up at church, kept showing back up at church. And he was needy. He was needy. His house had burned. He needed money. You know, church people love to help people that are hurting. And he endeared himself to them in incredible ways. And then I started seeing him at fellowship events. He would have new believers cornered. And he had had the Bible open. And he was sharing with them. And I finally, I had enough. So I went to him and I said, I need to talk to you in my office. And I'd already sh shared with another man to please join me in my office. He was already there. This guy walks down to my office, and I said, listen, I finally know who you are. I recognize you. 
He said, what? Who, what do you mean? I said, you're a wolf. You don't belong here. You're not welcome here. I better never see your face again. The Lord has revealed to me exactly what you're trying to do. And he got so angry. I can't believe you call yourself a pastor of this church and you don't love people. Anyway, I, I cried like a baby. And underneath my desk where I was so, from here up, I was powerful. From here down, I was wilting and my knees were shaking. But I had to keep remembering, this man is trying to destroy the people of God and lure them away for what they've believed for generations. I told him, I said, if you want these people to believe, go get your own people. Go start your own church if that's what you want to do. You are not welcome here. And if I see you here again... Next time I see you, it better be on the sidewalk, is what I think I said. Honestly, it's all kind of a blur. That was early, early on in ministry, and I was terrified. And sometimes even now, I feel bad about that because I, well, I don't want to ever mess that up. But if you think the the wolves only live out there, you're mistaken. Satan will send people in here. To lure us off track. And if you think he's going to lure us off track just by doctrine, you're sadly mistaken. Sometimes it's just little small. Just little small. Did God really say, hey, let's. Hey, it's no big deal. Hey, let's. Just and slowly, generation even after generation, it becomes something that God never intended for it to be. So it brings me to say this. You have the church at Ephesus, and the church at Ephesus, it was super clear. They had truth without love, and it led them to rigid, rigid legalism. Church at Thyatira had love, no truth, and it led them to immorality. Both of those extremes are equally dangerous and not Jesus at all. And I pray that God would give us a balance of love and truth in balance that transforms people, we can encourage people, and there's where we find true happiness, is in holiness, is obedience. So I want to say this to us, in the kindest, gentlest way, and some of you, you know, if this is your first Sunday, boy, don't usually come out this way. But what I want to say is, We have to be careful of subtle shifts back because one makes it easier for the next one. And we end up in a place that we did not know we were in. We end up in a very cold place where we don't even know what's going on. A very cold place where we don't feel like we can speak in. And I'm going to say this, and this is a very, very important. When you come to church, we belong to each other. What happens in the early church in Thyatira, influential people get more power. And once people become more and more influential, they're untouchable. And you can see that in a lot of churches. That's why churches that are driven by personalities are so dangerous. If you come to Connect Church, don't follow the influential people. Don't follow the people who make lots of contributions, whomever they may be. Don't follow the people who have the strongest opinions or who have been here the longest. Don't follow the politicians. Don't follow the advocates. Don't follow the people who have your best interest at heart. Don't follow after the people who've been there before and can counsel you through your thing. No. You need to follow Jesus. You need to make sure that you are grounded in his word and what he teaches because there's not a person in here that will judge you. Jesus Christ will judge. Be careful what you ask of people if you're pulling them away or pushing them to Christ. Be careful who you allow to influence you and make sure that it's the Holy Spirit of God because we should be increasing in our love and in our truth and our obedience of Him. And I say that out of love, not out of judgment because that I know Christ-likeness brings us into the presence of God. And if we want true forgiveness, if we want to experience the mercy of God, the mercy of God can only be experienced through the grace of God. And the grace of God can only be experienced through forgiveness. And forgiveness can only be experienced through repentance. And repentance can only be experienced through confession. And confession can only be experienced 
through admitting who we are. And you have to be careful who you surround yourself because they will tell you who you are. Be with Jesus. Listen to what he says about you. And you'll know what it's supposed to look like. And you can follow that change right into the mercy of God into everlasting life. It's the only pathway. It's through repentance. And I don't know who is here. And I don't know what brokenness and heartache or, or compromises or tolerance we're tempted to experience. And maybe have participated in. But this morning, I'm asking... If there is anything in your life that is before Jesus Christ, purge it. And if there's any sexual immorality in your life, purge it. Recognize it for what it is. And quit telling yourself it's okay. It's not okay. It will bring the eyes of fire and the feet of brass to everlasting judgment. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would. It's heavy. It's so heavy. And it should be heavy. It's not a, it's not a sermon. It's a warning from God himself. And let he who has ears to hear, let him hear what God is saying. This morning as we pray, I just want us to, I want us to, you got a choice. You got a choice. He's already told us what's coming. You got a choice to use your own eyes of fire and to pierce your own life and to be able to see without bias to yourself. Examine yourself today because you will be examined. What grace God gives us to do self-examination and to challenge one another to self-examination to be able to link arms with brothers and to know that we're not alone and that we're not fallen we know exactly who we are so this morning if you need to come forward and repent maybe you, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus just yet maybe you don't have a relationship with the church just yet Maybe make that decision today. Somebody, we'd love to pray with you. But maybe there's some things in your life that's a secret known only to you. I beg you today. I'm not asking you to reveal your secrets. If they're personal, keep them personal. I am asking you to evaluate yourself and bring those things into the light of God himself and repent. Change your mind about what is good and what is evil and experience his forgiveness. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for this time together this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word and I pray that it would be a warning to us. I am grateful that we are not reading this letter with our name on it. I would much rather read somebody else's letter. But may we learn, may we learn your expectations before we have to read our own. pray that your spirit would be heavy in this room and that we would know what to do. Lord, if we are engaged or involved in sin, whatever it may be, Lord, that we would have the freedom in the spirit to lay that down before you. And Lord, if there is a slippery slope that we're sliding down right now, I pray that, that you would give us a mind to know it and a mind to, to turn it around and to hold on to your hand. Lord, we know that you love us. We know that there's grace in you. It's the whole point of the book is that you're giving us an opportunity. Thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you, if you want to come, need to come, I beg you this morning to do that. If that's something that you want to do where you are, I beg you to do that. I just want us to leave clean. I want us to leave new. I want us to leave sure. Father, I pray that you would separate us from the things of this world, that we'd be able to have wisdom to know what is of you and what is not. 
No, it's not your will for us to be miserable. It's your will for us to be whole, holy. It's your will for us to be secure. It's your will for us to be assured of eternity and to be able to walk in a perfect relationship with our Creator. That's why all of this exists, this is so that we can be new, clean, whole, filled, empowered, supernatural. Pray, Lord, we wouldn't settle for less. Pray that we wouldn't settle for substitutes. Pray that we wouldn't settle for lies and deception. We wouldn't settle for tolerance and compromises. We wouldn't settle for neutral. We wouldn't settle for slips and fading to gray. So, Lord, I, I know that the ask is heavy, but by your grace, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk worthy of your name and of your identity. And Lord, as we turn out now into the world, I pray that you would use us as radiant people of God that have been in your presence that can illuminate the world around us. Not like the sun god Apollo but like the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the light of the world. And I pray, Lord, that we would be that, that as we walk, we would give life, we would give encouragement, we would give hope, we would produce joy and peace and comfort in the lives of brokenness. So use us, Lord, as the church of Jesus Christ. In his name and for his glory we pray. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.